Hi, my name is Yvonne, and Femtech to me is saving good women from bad design. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Focus podcast where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and before we kick off today's episode, I want to tell you about our upcoming summit on March 22nd. Y'all, this is less than two weeks away. You gotta get your tickets for this women's health and wellness conference at femtechsummit.com. We have an awesome lineup of speakers like Jesse Draper from Hologen Ventures, one-on-one office hours with investors, and a reverse pitch competition where Femtech investors will pitch to founders about what types of deals they're looking for. Get your ticket today at femtechsummit.com. Okay, Fem fans, today's episode features my interview with Yvonne Lin, founder of 4B Collective. Yvonne is a designer and an expert at considering gender in developing compelling and functional solutions to complex design problems. She was named a Master of Design by Fast Company. She has designed numerous award-winning and best-selling products and services for clients such as Nike, Under Armour, Lego, Hasbro, UNICEF, Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson, PepsiCo, Nissan, and American Express. She is the inventor on more than 20 patents. In this interview, we discuss gender lenses on product design. The male-dominated design and innovation industry lacks female perspective. As a result, companies often resort to a stereotypical pink-it-and-shrink-it design strategy that frustrates and alienates women. 4B is a collective of expert strategists, designers, and engineers who deeply understand how to design for women. They help companies create products and experiences that women love. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Yvonne, welcome to the show. Hi, Brittany. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, We were just chatting about you're in a wind tunnel, essentially, right now. Where are you? Yep, I'm in New York City on the sixth floor right next to the Hudson River, and the wind is slamming into my windows at 45 miles an hour right now. So uh, if you hear a clang, that's it. (laughs) Wow, I love, we interview people from all over the world, and it's always so fascinating to me, like, is there a wildfire outside? Is it hot? Is there a hurricane? Like, you you have wind, you're a wind, wind attack, and it's cold too, right? Oh, it's crazy cold. It's 16 degrees, I think, right now. Yeah. It's Brutal. not okay. Oh my God. Brutal. All right. Well, let's talk about fun things and warm ourselves up. <laughs> um, let's start with your background. Our listeners love to hear where people came from. What did they study? What was their career? And, and how did they end up, you know, where they are out today? Okay, sure. Um, So I started out as a little kid in California who had multiple rolls of duct tape on me at all times. 
Um, I feel like I was just one of those kids who was like taking stuff apart and attempting to put it together, but it wasn't always put together the right way. Like, you know, the evil boy in Toy Story, I was kind of him, like the kid putting together stuff. Um, And so because of that, I knew I was creative. I knew I was artsy. Mm -hmm. Um, I knew I liked to make stuff that worked. Um, and at the same time, going to straight up art school didn't seem quite right because it didn't seem impactful enough. But at the same time, going straight into engineering seemed really boring. Mm. And so I wasn't really quite sure where I lived because I was definitely in this like world where there was duct tape and artsiness and making stuff and creativity. Um, and so I ended up going to Brown where there's this joint program between RISD and Brown, uh, RISD and Brown. I ended up getting a degree in design slash fine art and engineering. And essentially it was almost basically the engineering degree was a mistake where I took every class where I could make things. And by the time I was a junior, I was like two math classes away from engineering degree. And I was like, all right, cool. I'll do this. So that's where I started out, Um, left school um, and this, idea that, hey, you could actually make things in this job called a product designer. And what I loved about it was you could literally go from designing a car to a hospital to a couch to an app, like all within the same year. Like you're spending two months on each project, which is great because I sort of have a short attention span. I love learning new things. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And uh, so that's what I've been doing for the last you can jump projects as a product designer who's like a consultant for different companies, or you can work within one company and work on different projects like that. Um, It's harder within one company for that breath. So I started out as um, a smart design and as a director. So that's one of the big consultancies where we're done everything from medical to toys to housewares. You sort of name it. I've probably worked on it. Oh, sex toys. Um, Yes. I've done some sex toys. Yes. All right. Yep. Everything. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, I definitely had a uh, box under my desk of a while of a uh, fake vagina. So done a fair amount of that. <laughs> if you have any of those left, please send me one. I oh. have lots of weird vaginal things. I don't have an, <laughs> a vagina model for sex toy molding, though. Oh, That'd yeah. Fun. Strangely enough, all my samples disappeared slowly over time. well i feel like there's a whole story there we should get we should hang out sometime and talk about it but yeah what's one of your favorite things that you've designed um i've done a lot of things um so um just as like a girl who did a lot of rock climbing a lot of skiing and used to do a lot of running sports bras are always my bane like just being stuck in a fitting room trying to fit a sweaty, sweaty sports bra on my head was terrible. Yeah. So um, I worked with Under Armour a couple of years ago and we convinced them to like actually fit bras for people who are all different sizes from A cup to double D cup. We intentionally put together a team that had girls of different breast sizes. Yeah. Um, and we made uh, bras that are both comfortable and good looking and you could get them off you. And they're actually sized like regular bras instead of small, medium and large. So that was pretty great. Um, I came back actually exactly this time last year, I was in South Sudan working with UNICEF on how to get vaccinations to women and children all over the country. So that was fascinating. And I love working with things like that. So I sort of break that up my sounds t- like a supply chain management issue, yes. not a product design, but is it, so I'm, I'm 
essentially what I'm asking is like, where do I have a disconnect? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So actually that's a really great question. So I started out in product design, like designing physical products, going back and forth to China, figuring out manufacturing, all that. I did that pretty much for about straight that for about eight years. And then I designed enough dumb products that I was like, (laughs) I don't know why this exists. I feel like I'm wasting my life, spending my time making another triple toilet paper roll dispenser. Um, Okay, so how do I get in the part of this, like, who decides this is what's getting made? Yeah. So that's called design strategy. So I've pretty much switched at this point where I'm mostly doing design strategy. Okay. I'm seeing the connection. You're breaking me there. (laughs) Yeah. So my world now is no longer just physical product. It is often supply chain, uh, digital. It could be uh, channel strategy. It could be like a physical spaces. It could be many, many things. So I work with a range of people from big fortune 500 companies of what is your next line? What is the next five years of Procter and Gamble to people that are there are doing good for the world. Um, and I really want to help them out and they might not have huge budgets, but they have really great intent. Yeah. Um, and so I split my time between like those types of projects. Amazing. And so what I'm hearing is that if you don't understand who's the end user, what country they're in, how it gets to them, all of those things, you, you really can't articulate what the design of the product should be. No, absolutely not. Like it drives me crazy. Um, like one of the times where, the, actually, I think the only time where I walked out of anything just so mad in my professional career was after the earthquake in Haiti, um, they had, this company had put together a giant budget and they had, did this like open call for designers. They brought, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars. They just got all these like first world designers to get into this like big room shiny, shiny room in New York City to brainstorm. And these are all designers who are like big names, but had never been to a third world country, has no idea what people live Uh, like or less than a dollar a day. Like that's pointless. Like that's just absolutely pointless. I cannot wait to talk to you about women-centered design. Before we do, (laughs) I do want to talk about 4B Collective. So so what is that? Sure. So um, I started a group when I was at Smart Design called the Femden. Um, which was Femden. Yeah. I love that name. Like a (laughs) lot. I love that a lot. Okay. Sorry. Yes. Thanks. Yes. Yeah. So we did really well. Um, we got a master design from fast company. We worked with all the big companies. We did a lot of great work, won lots of awards. Um, and then I feel like I'm in the boat where women in New York city are in where you turn 35 and you're like, Oh, I'm supposed to have a kid (laughs) while working these hours. Yeah. Not sure how that's going to work. Yep. Um, and so I left and started a design collective called 4B. And we wanted to explore a working model that could basically fulfill the needs that I had, which was I wanted to do exciting work. I wanted to have time to do work both for myself and people who might not have the budget but have really great intentions, yep. but also not starve. And so... Uh-huh. 
Yeah. And so 4B Collective is a group of us where um, it's all people who are pretty senior, have lots of experience. We're all often doing our own thing, teaching, writing books, running startups, doing whatever. But at the same time, we also get together and do commercial work when it's the right client and it's the right fit. So and what are the four, do the four B stand for something or? Yeah. uh, Four billion women in the world. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 So if that's the case, if like 4 billion women in the world is like literally built into the name of your company, do you design a lot of things for women? Yes. So what's funny is that like women use most everything in the world, the same as men do, right? Like, it's not like there are very few instances where you need a separate women's thing. Like you certainly don't need a women's pen or a women's, you know, whatever. So, but the thing is, if you look at the world, um, about 80% of all innovators and design are male. And, and not only that, but the entire history of innovation and design has been very male dominated. And if you look at what is um, what is deemed as important and what is prioritized in the design process, it hasn't really been questioned at all. And so all those things in the world that both women and men use, in fact, women tend to, women purchase about 80% of all goods around the world are really designed from a highly male perspective that's never even questioned. And so, um, yes, a lot of the things I design are for women, but you don't necessarily think of them as like for women. Yeah. Just... You're just like, hey, listen, you've used the male <laughs> paradigm long enough. Yeah. Even if this is a gender neutral product, I'm going to always look at it through the lens of a woman. Yes. Or at least I'm going to pay attention to oh, the yeah. fact that women are going to be using this thing and pay attention and consider what's important to them and prioritize that in the design process. Oh my gosh, I love this. So what are um, some products that you, like, you have a different way of seeing the world, obviously. Like, I'm a geneticist. I, I see things through, like, genetic engineering and evolution. I'm like, that makes sense evolutionarily. So, like, your eyes, you must be always thinking product design. So what are some, like, products that you are like, this was made for a man and, like, somebody has to redo this for a woman because we don't even realize how bad it's not made for us. You know, does that make any sense? Like, do you yeah, have any sure. examples of that? Sure. Um, I've done a lot of car design. Like we actually, you know what, let's start with medical equipment because you, okay. you're, you're in the medical world a lot. Right. Yep. Um, so what's interesting about medicine is that a lot of just pure surgical tools and things that are used in medicine are, have to be manipulated with hands. And if you look at ergonomically where the crossover is between men's hands and women's hands, there's actually very little overlap. There's only about, I think a 5% overlap between the smallest male's hand and the largest female hands. And if you look oh at surgical boy. tools, and if you look at surgical tools and you look at um, how they're designed, they're not taking into account that more than half the people graduating from medical school are women. The number of surgeons are catching up very quickly with men. 70% of all the people that you find in a hospital are actually female. Um, and if you just look at oh the God. hospital and what's in the hospital, how badly things are de- designed, it's kind of shocking. Um, so operating tables, right? Operating tables. Yes, they do. You can change the height of them. Uh-huh. But the range of height is such that a five foot eight orthopedic surgeon who spoke to me said that she does her surgeries while standing on a stool. 
Oh my God. I'm five foot four. <laughs> I'm five foot three. Oh. Yeah. Um, laparoscopic staplers, which you use in order to close up an incision afterwards, right? Uh-huh. Very, very, very common tool. They're designed so that theoretically you use one hand to operate it and the other hand to hold the skin yeah. like in place, right? But the vast, I can't remember the exact percentage, but it's high, but it's much more than 50% of women have to use two hands to use that tool. Oh. Yeah, because they can't operate it with one hand. I simply oh. just can't get their hands around it. You know, it's, um, I have this like running Google doc. It's called shocking facts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because this job has so many, I forget them. And so I just yeah. like throw them in there. W- welcome to my list of shocking facts that I need to, you know, like, thank you. Yes. for. T- wow. Okay. All right. Um, you have more, do you have more for me? Oh, I have like- more like that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny. I was giving a talk to a major, uh, medical, um, a major, major medical, uh, supplier, like one of the top three in the world. And um, I had a friend of mine who was part of the Australian surgeons um, group. And she posted like onto her group, like for female Australian surgeons, like friend of ours is giving a talk. Please give me any comments that you'd like her to tell this company. And I got something like 400 replies in 16 hours. Mm -hmm. And each one was about a particular medical instrument and what was wrong with it and how it needed to be like solved. And in particular, the problems were it was designed for somebody else. Yes. And these are very like, I mean, ergonomic problems are sort of the most duh of all problems, right? Like, even if you look at hospitals, one of the major reasons why um, things get dirty is just because scrub pants are too long and things get dragged from room to room. And if you look at scrubs, they're actually designed for the male body. And if you look at clothing fit, a man will fit much better into a women's scrub than vice versa. And not only that, but a lot, a lot of people who work in hospitals currently in the United States are Filipino nurses who tend to be much shorter. And so um, years ago, I designed a scrub where you could just put snaps on the inside of the legs and you can snap them up to different heights. So there's like, like it's, it's the opposite of rocket science. Like that's, that's the level we're talking about. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. You mean women's bodies and art? <laughs> it's not rocket science? Yeah. Whoa, you're really taking me back. Cause yeah, like again, you know, I always invite our listeners, like, you don't even realize all the ways you're disadvantaged, right? Like, you really have to try to sit back and think. In college, I worked as a medical technician and I wore scrubs. And you launched me backwards in how many different types of scrubs I had to buy because my, I couldn't bend over and my bum was like too tight. And, um, and then I was like swimming in it because my belly was like smaller than it, but then my chest was good enough or it was (laughs) like tight on my chest. Like you just took me back and I accepted it. I was just like, my body's so weird. You know, like no scrubs fit me. And I'm like super freaking average, like body Yeah, you're super average. And that's just because it's not fitting you. I had one surgeon at some point call me over and like whisper in my ear, by the way, I've seen the breasts of every woman in this hospital just because of the way they cut that V-neck on scrubs. It gapes. (laughs) Like there's just so many of these things. Wow. How about like everyday consumer products? So, you know, maybe we have some listeners. I have a lot of friends that are farmers in New Hampshire. So I always like to point them out, like for the farmers in New Hampshire, like what are something that maybe is in their life? Sure. Like uh, my sister is actually a farmer. 
So, Perfect. yeah. So, um, my sister's a farmer. She just gave birth to her second kid and, uh, she could not find maternity work pants. Um, so one of my side gigs is I, um, I'm one of the judges for the outdoor retailer show. Okay. And uh, someone submitted maternity work pants for the first time with like an elastic belt where you can actually work. They're rugged. They fit your body. And uh, I gave them the top award. Thank you. <laughs> so, Thank you. Uh, and also WTF. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, like we no one's considered that, right? Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where if you work in an office, right, where it's like, so when I... So at one point I was handed a Smurfette t-shirt because I was the only female who was either an engineer or designer. So what you'll very often find in these design offices is if there are women, they're often in support or administrative roles. Yeah. And the ergonomic thing, like it, that happens because what happens is in the office or in the design office, you're making models, you're making foam models, you're checking how they fit in their hands. And if you don't have someone with a small hand in the office, then the person with, then you're limited, sorry. So you basically have people with only large hands in the office. They're the only ones who are going to try the product. They're going to okay it. And then it's going to go out into the world. It's simple yeah. as that. Yeah. You I mean, yeah. that even if someone brings up, Hey, what if we design a version for women that the feedback is that the market's not big enough? Oh, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Thousand percent. It's a chicken and egg. And it's also one of those things where oftentimes you're the only woman. You're oftentimes the most junior in the room. There's a hundred other people. They've already spent millions and millions of dollars on this project. <laughs> and you're like, right? and you're like, yeah, yeah. Like I was um, talking to a friend of mine who's an architect and they were redesigning the um, airport, one of the major airports. And uh, they had a hundred people in the room, all architects, all people are working on this project that already spent a year on it the designer was about to get the final go ahead. And one of the things that they do is they just run a timing test. Like, can you get to point A to point B within the terminal in a reasonable amount of time? And they had run two tests um, and they had said, if we're good, we're gonna go ahead. She happened to go to the airport and she noticed there are parents with children in the airport and uh, she said, we never ran this test um, because the two tests that they had run were the single businessman by himself and the professional NFL player. <laughs> because the Super Bowl was going to be in that city in the next year. And they had like sneakers on, right? Yeah. It wasn't yeah. even like woman businessman, woman. No, no, healed. no, nothing. Like, no, no, it was ma a male businessman and professional male NFL player. That's who they ran it with. That was it. And she forced them to run it with a parent with two children, uh -huh. two young children. It took them four hours to get around the airport or something like that. Yeah, wow. it's, it's, uh, yeah. When I think about like women-centered design and architecture, I always think about bathrooms. Like yep. if a woman designed the stadium, our bathrooms would be three times as big, you know, as many. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I mean, as a five foot three woman, I can't tell you how many times I've looked at my forehead like in a bathroom with a mirror. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. Crazy, crazy, crazy. All right. Well, what I love to do is, um, I do love to bitch about things because I think that's part of awareness is <laughs> like, Hey, look at my list of shocking facts. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I love to talk about solutions. And so I'm so glad there's solutions like you as an individual and a pioneer and 4B collective. Um, I did hear kind of a solution of getting more women in that 
product design room, but I feel like we're going to, I don't know, like that seems like it's going to take a really long time. Like what are some other ways that we can start making people think, Hey, this is uh, not really for people with kids or people with smaller hands or this height. How are we going to do that? I mean, one of the things I really love about just pitch nights and pitching and like, is that if you look at the numbers, the numbers make sense. Like purely financially, the fact that you're ignoring women leaves so much money on the table. It's such a simple equation. Like I, the reason why my collective exists is that I can go to almost any, any industry and say, look, here are the top players in your industry. They're the top because they're paying attention to women this way. This is how much money they are. Wow. This is you. This is all your competitors. This is how much you're losing because of this, this, and this. And that's true. You have examples of oh, when, absolutely. when companies focus on women-centered design, they yeah. make money. I have decks on pretty much every industry of like, like I don't, when I go make a pitch to potential clients, I don't do the feel good story. I don't <laughs> do the, like you're doing this to save the world story. I make the pure financial cold pitch. I love that because part of my job is consulting founders on fundraising. And I'm like, listen, we don't need to convince them all to care about vulvas. Although I wish we, they did. We need to convince them that we're going to make a money, you know, yeah. like there's X number of vaginas willing to pay X amount of money per year for my products I'm making. And if you want 10 X, you should give me your money, you know, whether or not you care about periods or not, you know, or whatever. Yeah. That's all you need to do. I mean, it's very, very simple. And also it helps if you look for a client or look for a company that already had a big fail. That's also helpful. Ooh, interesting. Big fail. Um, but what if they had failed? This is actually, so I'm going to, I'm going to pull these together. There is uh, like vaginal mesh was a horrible yep. medical device that fucked up a lot of women. Yep. And so there are actually some apprehensions in pharma and med device to say, well, we did a women's thing and it just totally blew up and we're still paying for it, you know? And so how far away from the loss do you need to be for that to like be like, you can't just do it once, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's a little bit harder. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, the big fail helps where they're not, well, yeah. I mean, I don't know what the answer to that <laughs> one is. Yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah. I guess my question, look, I've, I guess what I found is like, there's sort of this magic equation where like people aren't really ready to listen yet. Like they think they know the answer. They feel like they, you know, they're the expert. They know women. Like, it's really funny. Like you um, talk to any straight man, like in your personal life and you ask, do you know women? Like, can you understand women? And very, like, I haven't met a single man that would say yes. Yeah. But somehow in the corporate boardroom, the answer is always an emphatic yes until they've tried their ideas. So sometimes you just have to give them time to try their ideas, realize they don't work. And then you say, hey, by the way, try it this way. Yes. Um, when you were in school, um, did you notice that there was ever a talk about women-centered design? Or no, there wasn't. Um, so what's funny is there's this really big divide between gender in school and in professional um, sphere. Ooh, so in school, that. it's actually pretty close to 50, 50, mm -hmm. like it's very close to 50, 50. What happens is that when you try to get a job in product design or design in general, you 
most places don't care what school you went to. They don't care what grades you have. It's really portfolio. And what happens is women's portfolios tend to be much more diverse because they're looking at how does this thing look? How does it work? How do you sell it? Who uses it? Why? Like they're just looking at a much broader thing. Uh And if you look at traditional companies, they're very, very siloed. So you have like this one side that looks at the packaging, the one side that looks at the advertising, the one side that looks at the like label. And so when they have someone who's diverse and multi-talented, they literally don't know what to do with them. And so there's a far, far, far less women in the corporate world and in the professional world. And that's what happens. Wow. Because we're, we're vivid we're extravagant we're multifaceted right is that what you're getting at and that corporate's a little bit more black and white and this is our lane and well I think it has to do a lot with psychology so when women judge a product they don't judge it in a microscope like they're not just judging the packaging they're not just judging the first use or the hundred use they're not just judging the messaging they kind of judge it all together they look at how everything works together men tend to be much more forgiving when they're shopping like Mm -hmm. They'll be like, if part A works, but part C isn't so good and they don't think part C is important, they're sort of more willing to forgive it. Okay. Um, and so what happens is, it's funny, I was um, uh, mentoring this MIT student, right? And she was in engineering class and her professor was asking to redesign a hairdryer. And she was going ahead with it. She was figuring out the mechanics of it, but she was also trying to make sure that it was comfortable enough and that everything could fit in the hand and that it was that you could store it and you could pack it for travel. And her professor was giving her a really hard time about all this stuff because to him, it wasn't important. Uh... And so when you look at the corporate world, there's a lot of that same mentality. So I was asked to design a pregnancy test for a major company. And the division that hired me was focused on the fact that women might get pee in their hands while they're taking the test. Uh Whereas women are like, I'm freaking out about the entire thing. I can't find the instructions. Where is this thing? How do I buy it in the store? Why, you know, like they're, and so women design in the same mindset that they judge the final thing themselves, right? Like if you care about the whole thing, you're going to want to design about the whole thing. Whereas if you don't care about the whole thing, you're less likely to want to design for the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so w- female students in school are thinking about this more holistic, broad ranging scope of things. A lot of the corporate world doesn't know how to deal with it. Yeah. A lot of the design consultancies don't know how to deal with it. And so they're getting hired less. But I do see it shifting. Uh-huh. Okay. I do see it shifting, especially with the startups of today right? The startups are small, they're scrappy, they're multidimensional. Like if you look at a lot of that, like that is where like a lot of women can really shine. Absolutely. hundred yeah. percent. Do you think we can have some education reform? Because that's one thing we talk about at Femtech Focus is how do we, how do we update med school <laughs> to like understand the real statistics and learn about new diagnostics and, and whatever. Um, what about product design school? Can we change that like is there a vagina class like designed for vaginas like <laughs> product design I mean it's funny like I do like a, there are a lot of sex toy projects actually there are a ton <laughs> of sex toy projects I'd actually say design school is relatively okay I mean I think that the thing with design school what I love about design school if you go to the right design schools you want to find a design 
you want to find professors who are working in the real world. Mm. And if you care about women, try to find a female professor or look at their body of work, right? Is it different? Is it pushing the, is it pushing the boundaries? Um, and I honestly think startups are sort of the way out, like get your skills, work at a consultancy if you can, work for a broad range of clients. Um, so you learn what you like. And then in the startup world, like you, if you have a great idea and you push it and you think about all the touch points, um, you pitch it right, you show that there's money and there is money to be made. Like that's a pretty decent track rather yeah. than fighting this like old ingrained, like, you know, yeah. siloed stuff that doesn't really make sense. Yes, no, totally. One of the things that, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, I'm just kind of like spitballing here with you. One of the issues we face in femtech is a lot of times it's emerging markets. Menopause should not be emerging, but it is apparently, right? And so like we just recently finally got a number, $600 billion uh, worth is that the menopause market. Forbes published that in like October. Yeah, older women are the the, the group with the most spending money in the entire United States. Yep. They've been boss babes for decades and now yeah. they're uncomfortable. Like yeah. they're probably going to spend money on helping yeah. themselves. Right. And so what I'm wondering though, when you're pitching a, a product or, you know, and you're saying, Hey, this product is great, but if we change it to this for women, that would be very important or whatever. Like, how do you get that data to prove it out? If like it literally hasn't existed before. So there's, it's hard to like create that market quantification. Do you know what I mean? You sort of do the thing where it's like, all right, so if I was doing menopause, right, it'd be like, how many women are there? How many women are over the certain age? How many people are complaining about menopause, like on all these forums? Like you sort of like, I feel like in all these places, you sort of try to do your best guess on all the numbers. I mean, like Airbnb and Uber, when they were like pitching, they're doing the same thing, right? They're doing the best guess on where they think the demand is being shown. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I feel like that, I wish that could be enough. And it's just so often I find investors being like, well, you know, that's not proven or, you know, I really don't understand that. And I'm like, well, do you really understand crypto? Or are you just in it? Like, no, like, you know, <laughs> you didn't need to fully understand it to disinvest. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I try to do is like, I try to find like, I, I also try to look for the investor, right? It's like, who's, who's yeah. married to the woman who is going through menopause, who's right. like got the mom, who's got the whatever. Right. And right. sometimes you just have to give them homework. Right. Like I was talking to a buyer from a big company and it was this guy who clearly never bought a candle in his life. And it was like a scented candle thing. And I basically said, all right, you're going to go home. Here are these 10 questions. Go ask your wife, go have her do that. Oh, I love that. Give them homework, give them an opportunity. Yeah. And um, what, uh, when um, I'm sorry, I can't remember her name. Um, I should know this, her name because I email her (laughs) occasionally the woman who um, raised money for things. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, when she walked into her funding meetings, the first thing that she did was she gave all the men a overnight maxi pad. Which are the worst. Yeah. Which are the worst. Yeah. Forced them to put it in their underwear and she did the pitch with them wearing it in their underwear. I mean, amazing. (laughs) I just want to walk into every situation in my life, whether I'm fundraising for things or not, and just give them the men and tell them to put it on. (laughs) Wow. 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 Well, what are some, um, you know, projects either you're working on now or future projects you hope to get into that have to do with women-centered design? Um, I have a project coming up, which I really love. Um, So I've already got it. I'm just going to be working on it later this year, which is um, 
how to get more girls into STEM and STEAM. And Mm. when I think about the way they're doing it right now, I think it's a lot about look at chemical engineering. This look at biological engineering. This is what the engineers do. This is what a typical day looks like. This is like what they studied in school. And I just look at the 12 year olds I know, and they don't care. And so, but yeah. what they really, but there are things that they care about. And those things that they care about might be saving the turtles, helping disabled people, people move, feeding the world, coming with a vaccine. Right. And Social so impact social impact, right? So all these middle school girls are highly, highly personally motivated by in fact, but no one in the STEM STEAM world right now is drawing a line between those two worlds, right? So what I'm doing is I'm picking a couple topics and I'm doing sort of like a humans of New York type thing where I'm finding people who are working on those topics right now and telling their stories about how they are making an impact in saving the turtles through whether they're a product designer or they're a chemical engineer or they're whatever, but it's really about the impact part. So cool. And it's <laughs> like, someone just had to sit down. <laughs> like, I mean, I don't know how long it took you to like connect those dots, but like the way you explained it, I'm like, well, that makes a whole lot of sense, you know? Yeah. I mean, what's funny is like, even I was, I, I sort of, I got the um, green light because a friend of mine's daughter was applying to middle school. And the essay question she had to write was, um, if I could do one thing to change the world, it would be blank. And that is a thing that girls are thinking about right now. And kind of makes sense. Do you have hope for the future then? Um, I think so. I do. (laughs) I don't know. I feel like I might uh, right now, my brain ping pongs between like, you know. I know. I know. Total demise and like, yeah. 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 No, I feel the same way where it's, um, you know, there are some days that I'm like, what am I doing? You know, like, I don't know if I'm moving the needle. I don't know. This yeah. like logic doesn't count apparently, or this doesn't, you know, but then there's sometimes, especially I have, um, several, uh, college students that are interns for me. And so they're, they're Gen Z and, they're just the most open-minded and passionate. And like, you're talking about the social impact. And I, so I have some hope, you know, that some generations, we just need to cycle through. (laughs) I hope let's be positive. (laughs) I did this talk about, um, I did this talk about 10 years ago where I had this theory, right. Where it's like, whatever the super nerds are into when they're tweens is what they try to make real. Um, like 30 years later when they're adults, right? So I was trying to track like, what are like the things that people are super into, whether it's like the Jetsons or it's like the James Bond, like phone, or it's like all those things. And then I was trying to track like, what are the like real real life innovations that happened 30 years later? And so I was, um, 10 years ago, I found a group of six, like incredibly brilliant 10 to 13 year olds. Yeah, I just interviewed them on like, what's really important to you right now. And what's crazy is like, I'm seeing that come to the world right now. I feel like I need to do that again. Like I need to find this generation. Oh, that's fun. That's a longitudinal study. It takes a while. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Well, speaking of like, you know, how do you want to impact the world? What do you want to do? How are you going to change it? We do have a lot of aspiring femtech founders that listen to the show. And so what's an area in women's health and wellness that you think still needs innovating? 
Um, well, definitely menopause. I think anything with older women, like menopause, aging in place, women live a lot longer, um, living alone. I did this project recently where um, I was working on a fall detector that used radar. And so it's just something that sits in your room, sort of innocuously like a nest. And then if you do fall, it calls um, medical support rather than like a life alert, which people are ashamed to wear. So yeah. anything like anything that allows older people to live healthier and more safely and happier, yeah. um, older women is really important. I also think fertility is really important. Um, as more and more women put off having children, just that network of like sperm banks and fertility clinics and doctors and pharmacists that all don't talk to each other in the United States. And it's terrible and it's confusing. Like that really needs a lot of help. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I love it. And um, what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? Um, I was going to say uh, funding money, but I feel like that's that's the like um, reply. A lot of people say money. So <laughs> yeah, to be another data point, another tick mark on our money list. Uh, you know what I'd actually say? I'd actually say different working strategies. Like if there is a way like that, like I just think like the way that women work, right? It's like in order to have a startup, you have to have quite a bit saved up and you have to be able to bootstrap it, right? Yeah. Or, and you have to have childcare and you have to have all those things, right? It's almost like, yes, I know we work has fallen in a big ball of fire, right? But are there other ways that women can work, have sanity, juggle their homes, um, home life, and do all those things where they don't have to have a giant nest egg of bootstrapping money to right. like explore their ideas? And I don't know what the answer to that is, but that'd yeah. be interesting to work on. And I, I meet, you know, being a founder myself and being an investor and I like being advising, like I see if there is a woman who's bootstrapped and she quits her full-time job, a lot of times it's because she has a husband with money. Yeah. And I am a, you know, I'm a single 29 year old woman. And I, I swear, I, I'm not kidding y'all. Like I sometimes think at night, like what dating app do I need to get on where there's rich men (laughs) who could like support me with all my entrepreneurial endeavors because damn, would that be nice, you know? Um, But you're right. Like, how can we change that model? Yeah. Cause I, I mean, it's totally true. I work with a lot of startups and a lot of the women, like, unfortunately a big percentage of them are married investment bankers. Yep. Like, yep. yep. Yeah. Well, next time you meet one of them, the husband has a brother <laughs> awesome banking, tell, and he loves vaginas. Tell him to come my way. Um, <laughs> well, this has been so much fun. You are just fascinating. I, I cannot wait to follow you, follow your stories and walk around my life with a little bit different of a lens in terms of was this made for me, you know? So awesome. Thanks so much for everything you do. Yeah, thank you. This is really fun. Thank you for listening to my interview with Yvonne Lind, founder of 4B. I want to know what was the most shocking part of this interview for you. Was it that surgical tools are still made for men's hands instead of women's? Or that sports bra sales increase when you offer them in actual bra sizes instead of small, medium, and large? Shoot me a message on social media and tell me what you thought of this episode. 
If you loved Yvonne's energy, then I highly recommend attending our Femtech Fundamentals webinar on March 17th at 1 p.m. Eastern, since she'll be giving a lecture on women-centered design and how to make and test your MVP. This is a webinar you will not want to miss, so register on the events tab at femtechfocus.org. Already Fem fans, don't forget to get your tickets in 11 days, March 22nd Summit. Go to femtechsummit.com to register. Also be sure to join our Femtech Focus virtual community and subscribe to our newsletter at femtechfocus.org. In our virtual community, you can become a Fem Pro member for only $10 a month and get access to a library of recorded Femtech content and free tickets to our Femtech Fundamentals events, like the one that Yvonne is teaching. You can also get discounts to our summit and merchandise. We have Monday night listening parties. We have a Femtech book club. We have weekly office hours on Clubhouse. There is a lot going on, so definitely become a member at femtechfocus.org so you can stay up to date. Also, please consider setting up a recurring donation to Femtech Focus since we are a 501c3 nonprofit and rely on your donations to operate. Okay, Fem fans, until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.